Hello, thanks for listening to this University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman and my guest this week is Bronte Ansell, Senior Lecturer in Law at the Brighton Business School. Bronte has responsibility for the soon-to-launch Pro Bono Clinic. We talked in detail about that, but got to know a bit about her first. Third year law lecturer is my primary role, so I teach the um, compulsory land law module to third-year undergraduates and postgraduate land law as well. So... That's been my specialist subject, which I've been doing here. And I've also spent the last year setting up the clinical legal education module, which has a pro bono legal clinic attached to it. Uh, So that will be my role as well going forward from September. And we're going to focus on that in just a bit, the, the, the clinics. It sounds really, really interesting what's, uh, what's about to be launching. Lots to talk about. Your career up to this point has been quite interesting. Um, can you sort of take us through a, a whistle-stop tour of how you've arrived here? Sure, yeah, uh, of course. So I a uh, whistle-stop is really difficult, <laughs> <laughs> uh, especially as you get older. I think uh, there's, there's so many years in between. Um, so I was a single mum. And I had a two and a half year old and I didn't have any qualifications and I was really struggling. I was doing four jobs at the time, so four different jobs running around, um, completely different things, uh, really random stuff from working in bars to working in admin assistant. And I just had a moment where I thought I do need a career and I need uh, some qualifications. And I took my then two and a half year old to law school at Sussex did my law degree and then stayed on and did a master's and at that point I had been offered an academic role at Sussex and at that point I had to make a decision whether to go into practice as a solicitor or barrister but I knew it was going to be a solicitor or stay on and become an academic and I had really enjoyed the academic side of things and and I it was a really tough decision and I agonized over it for months and in the end I was offered a scholarship by the Law Society to go and do the LPC. And I just felt like I should do that. I felt like I should practice. I should do it. And just, not just to see, but just to know for sure, I think. And I know that sounds a bit like a luxury, but I just, I felt such a strong draw to practice that um, I wasn't 100% about it and, and... on reflection, you know, I should have perhaps listened to that part of my my voice, but I thought, let's do it. Um, so I'd been teaching between Brighton and Sussex for a little while after my master's, and then I got this scholarship, and then I went and did the LPC part-time whilst I carried on teaching at Brighton, and really enjoyed the LPC, and, and thought, okay, let's do the training contract. So I went and did the training contract at quite a good firm. It was a top 60 law firm based London South East. And they were great. Um, They're a good law firm. They're still a good good law firm now. And I've got a lot of respect for them. But ultimately, fairly quickly into my training contract, I just felt wrong. I felt like I was in the wrong place. And I felt like I was a square peg in a round hole. And I just wasn't really doing the things that the other people were doing and I wasn't really and for me I'm a very high achiever and when I'm not achieving it's a really strong voice inside my head that's saying something's wrong ultimately it just wasn't for me and I I did finish my training contract I did qualify as a solicitor and I did I worked in private practice for 
a client's a sort of quasi in-house position for about three years afterwards, um, which was great and, and allowed me to travel a bit and, and get some experience. But all the time I just had this voice inside my head saying, just go back to academia. Mm. <laughs> um, and it kind of took me quite a few more years to really find my way back and um, work out what I want to do. Um, so... Yeah, I, in the meantime, had a second child. Being a, a mother for the second time around kind of derailed me again a little bit pers- uh, professionally, not personally, but professionally. I took some more time off, raised her, got her to sort of school age and, and then felt again ready to come back to the work environment full time. So she's now seven, actually. I wanted her to have those few golden years with me without too much stress and pressure. So I came back to Brighton 18 months ago when she was five and and that was really the right decision for me so I'm back at Brighton uh, full-time as an academic senior lecturer in law really loving it Um, absolutely adore my job and my students and some research that I'm doing Hmm. and that's is that a whistle stop tour I don't know I I feel like I've been talking for ages I mean so you had some you had some time (laughs) away from it professionally do you sort of realize that you wanted to come back during that time was it was there kind of like a moment have you come back and you you look at things a little bit differently as well yeah I think I really miss the intellectual challenges of being in a fast-paced legal environment I really missed having high-level discussions with colleagues and students I missed pushing myself and have others push me and all of those things were sort of playing on my mind in the intervening years when my daughter was very small I did um, run a small business with a friend of mine we set up a small um, vegan food and drink business and that was amazing and my business partner was amazing and it taught me a lot of things about running a business and it's enabled me actually to lecture in business law very successfully we had a ball and we had a laugh but ultimately it just wasn't intellectually challenging enough for me and I I started to realise that I really do want to do a PhD. I really did want to um, begin my research career, albeit very late. So yeah, it just was this really strong pull towards those kinds of conversations and yeah it was an opportunity came up for some very a very small amount of part-time work and it, that just nailed it for me I just I was just doing for I think Friday mornings a couple of hours on a Friday morning uh, for Brighton and I really loved it and I just thought what am I doing I just I just want this full-time so yeah I don't know if this is a, a difficult question or not but your, your experiences of being a solicitor for yourself didn't fit after you'd done after you'd done the training and you'd you qualified obviously now you're teaching students yeah. who would maybe are going that same direction as well yeah. um so what do you what do you sort of tell them does it come down to a, a personality thing or does it come through to a practice thing or the way things are looked at and the way things are taught sure so there's there's a lot to unpack there and i tell students to find their inner voice and follow their heart I also tell them to really think whether the law, the love of the law, the love of reasoning, the love of argument, really, um, flows through their veins. Do they feel it? Do they do they feel this pull towards logic, reasoning, um, organising things, getting getting stuff done? Do they feel those those feelings? And and if they don't, then there may still be a career for them, and that that might be academia, for example. Academia is is very logical and there's a lot of argument and reasoning to be done there it is a it's a very different type of day-to-day life than than practice so um there might still be a way through 
if you don't fit the traditional solicitor personality, and, and I do think it is a personality. The other thing to say is that firms are very different. So a top 20 firm is very different than a top 60 firm. And a niche intellectual property or media firm is very different than all of that. So there is something out there for everybody. So if somebody, if a student were to come to me and say, look, I'm just, you know, I love arguing and I love logic, but I'm just this or I'm that. You know, I think with the group of friends that I have and the contacts that I have, I can kind of give them a little bit of advice and say, well, maybe ha have you thought about a really small niche firm where everyone's a similar age to you and um, similar interests and there's a similar work ethic. So, you know, perhaps... The, the whole nine to five doesn't really suit you. Perhaps you really like working really hard for three months and taking two months off or whatever. So that I I, I have friends who are doing lots of different things. And, and I think I hopefully push um, any questions in the right direction. So, yeah. And, and the university is quite open in your school as well to try different things when it comes to law training. Uh, it wasn't that long ago we spoke to Zoe Swan uh, from your school, who obviously does the wellness classes. Do you think that in general, the techniques of ways of learning law have changed or are changing, at least, uh, since, since you um so as a lawyer and um as a lawyer who's both practiced and taught I think I would always say that law is one of the slowest to catch up I mean I think if we think about tech um if we think about people studying tech or people studying drama people studying art we don't move as fast as those <laughs> industries um we like to go nice and slowly and we like to really think very carefully about making any changes um and that's just who we are you know that's our reputation and 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 that's fine um and it's a slow careful considerate move having said all of that yes i do think there has been a change since i studied law in the sense that we are able to offer things that perhaps weren't there so I think that there is a, a an interest now and certainly some perhaps even the funding dare I say funding word um for exploring different ways to communicate information to learn practically quite early on in the degree so when I was studying law the academic stage was very, very separate from the practitioner stage and like never the never the two shall meet kind of thing, uh, certainly in my university um, and most of my friends' universities. And I think we've blurred the lines a little bit between those two things. I think we are offering now at the academic stage, we are offering students an early way into looking at practice and thinking, oh, you know, this is what practitioner lawyers do. This is how it looks. And you can give it a try for a week or a month or, you know, you can do a placement year and things like that. And I think that's to be applauded. I think that's amazing. I think that's probably my one regret is while I was doing my academic stage, I wish I'd gone out and fought harder to get placements and to get work experience because I think I would have worked out earlier who I am and who what the industry is. Let's talk about the the clinic that you're going yes. to be setting up in September. Then, so what you you're going to be responsible for it? Can yes. you tell us all about it? Where did the uh, how's it kind of come to this point? Sure. So of course, so it's a really exciting project, and I'm immensely grateful for the support I've had from the senior management team. My head of school is completely on board with it, and has kind of held my hand through it every step of the way, and been really, really great. So. Last January, so January 2018, 
we were having some discussions around our competitive set and we were having discussions around practical legal education and, and that blurring of those lines between academic stage and practitioner stage and out of those discussions we realised that we possibly had the bandwidth for some sort of advice centre we weren't quite sure what it was and we needed a lead for that we needed someone just to take it and run with it with no real kind of um, hours to do it at that point not much knowledge within the school so it was about researching for that knowledge and gaining that knowledge and then presenting that knowledge back to senior management and I, I just really liked the idea of giving something back so I really like the idea of staying as an academic which is what I, I really love doing but giving something back to the community in terms of free legal advice and being within the practitioner role that I trained for but without all of the stresses and kind of six minute billing and you know client lists and everything um, and also helping students come to a place where they understand practice and they know for sure if it's for them um, as much as you ever can do with with that kind of experience. Um, so those three things kind of all made me think, wow, this is a really exciting project for me and, and I'm really happy to run with it and see what I can do with it. So I spent um, about six months or so, maybe a bit more, researching it. I went to a couple of conferences. Um, I read endlessly about regulation, insurance, the types of clients we could expect, um, funding, charitable funding, university funding, everything. And I put a proposal to the school and they really liked the idea of it and they feel like it fits in really well with the practical wisdom strategy of the university. Um, and we had ongoing constant discussions every month with the senior management team. So that has basically been my life for the last year or so. Once we got school level approval, we've then put it to university executive board approval in the meantime, to kind of speed things up and try and get the ball rolling as much as possible, I wrote a module called Justice and Practice, which is a third year optional module. So if you come to Brighton and you do the law degree, any law, any part of the law degree, law with criminology, when you get to your third year, you will always have options. And that is the point at which you say, this is what I like doing. And we have things like family law, you know, we have negotiation modules, we have healthcare modules. And justice and practice sits within that group now. So um, that was approved in February this year and it's due to start in September this year, 2019. And that justice and practice module is a clinical legal education module. So it's credit bearing. It goes on your degree transcript. As a student, you feel like, A, you've given something back to the community, which is, you know, social justice reasons are often at the forefront of that that type of student. But B, you, you also get recognition on your degree transcript. You know, you can do potentially really well in this module and that counts towards your degree classification. And I think, I think we have to be realistic. That's really important to students. They do need to know that there's that kind of recognition there. The clinic sits within that module, but that module supports that clinic and, and vice versa so. so how would it work then so it'd be um as you say it'd be open to the the public i assume it would also be a great resource for our own students and, yep. and stuff how is that going to be managed in terms of the so there's always going to be more people that would like that need that support than maybe than a resource yeah that, that, that can be given yeah i think this is the thing. When I first started it, I started out and it was about, had about a week where I worried about whether we'd ever have any clients. Um, in the early stages when I was putting the proposal together, and I thought, oh, 
maybe we'll never have a single client. And then <laughs> as the year has gone on, I've realised that the need for free legal, good quality free legal advice, um, well-supported, well-supervised legal advice is immense in Brighton and Hove, just, just in the local area. Um, and then I stopped worrying immediately about having uh, not having enough clients and started worrying about having a far too long a waiting list of clients. And that's my current worry is, you know, how do we manage expectations around that? And I'm hoping as the module grows and as the clinic grows, more students will come on board. So right now I'm working with some clients and managing their expectations. They're waiting for the clinic to open. We have a waiting list building already. How's they access that? So we will run like a micro organisation. Mm -hmm. So we will have contact numbers, email addresses. Um, the students will help manage all of that. There'll be um, print literature put up all around Brighton and Hove, in places like doctor's surgeries, citizens' advice, and so on and so forth. And clients will be able to pick up the phone or send an email and say, I have this this legal problem, I, I have no way of accessing a paid-for solicitor, I'm not eligible for legal aid perhaps, or I, I, don't, I don't even know how to check whether I'm eligible for legal aid, can you help me with that? And we will take them on, work out what we can offer them, if anything, or we may cross-refer them to another organisation that is better placed to help them. Um, but ultimately we are, I suppose, triage. So yeah, I suppose we would initially, certainly for this year, we're kind of triaging, so we are... We are looking at giving the first few steps of advice. Um, we're cross-referring. We are supporting just with things like filling in a form to get legal aid. So it may be that we see a client and we look through the funding options for them and we find out actually, do you know what, you are eligible for legal aid. We can help you fill that form in. We can submit that for you and we'll go from there. And then we cross-refer them to a legal aid solicitor. So the students are... Let me just making sure I get this right. So the, the students will be helping to give that advice um, under the supervision, I guess, at the same time with someone with like yourself. Yeah, there, exactly that. Yeah. So which is quite nice for you as well, I guess, in a way, because you're doing now you are combining the two. So you're finding a way in some ways to practice. But exactly uh, that. But yeah. in, a, in a way that actually <laughs> in a really fits nice for you. Way, yeah. In a really nice way that kind of meets a lot of my own internal ethical concerns about the justice system. Um, so exactly that so the students take the module so at the moment we are keeping the clinic for the module students just while while we are looking at, at um, what what we've got here really and what we can achieve with the funding that we've got we've said to the students if you want to work in clinic come and take the module um, there will be a few peripheral students that can help with some management tasks but in terms of actually seeing clients and giving legal advice students take the module and within that module, they then get allocated clients and client appointments. So they interview the clients under supervision. So I'm the clinic lead. What that will mean is I will sit on in on the vast majority of interviews. But I've also got support from two external organisations. So we've got a barrister's chambers called One Crown Office Row. In They've got chambers in Brighton and London. We have an agreement with one of their barristers to come in and, and help supervise. The other external partner we've got is Erwin Mitchell and they have agreed to send some of their mid-level solicitors, so they're sort of three or four years qualified, which is perfectly entitled to supervise at that level. Um, so they will come in as well. So there's kind of a three-pronged approach to supervision. Largely, it will fall on my shoulders. I have no doubt about that. <laughs> this will all launch properly in, in September. Yeah, 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 exactly. And based in at the university? Yep. so obviously you're well aware we've got the big build going on. Um, so we've requested space within the new build yeah. um, and obviously that's not ready and won't be ready for another year so this year we are 
um, camping, shall we say. <laughs> we will hopefully get an, one academic office for our students to work in and have as their own space and be known as the clinic office. And then we will have some mock interview space in terms of it may be in one room one week, one room the next week, but it's somewhere where the clients can come and be interviewed. And then the students can go back to the academic office and work on the, on the PCs and do their legal research. Once the big build is complete, we're really hoping that we will get a dedicated space, which will just be amazing. Mm. And the students will really feel that hub, clinic, centre kind of feel. Mm. So, yeah, we're, we're camping out this year. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, talking about the, um, the ethics of it, I mean, helping people out that can't afford legal advice and for students who are training you sort of hope that this is kind of ethically what they why their trainings do in the first place because they want to want to help people in the same way that someone's training for to be a nurse or a doctor or something similar so it must be quite rewarding i guess to get them into this kind of practice quite early on before they've actually qualified i realize when they do qualify the, the money's not in this line of work which is the obviously the age-old issue but to get that firmed up in their own minds before they actually qualify is a good thing going forward because you're creating better practitioners aren't you i think so i think that's a really interesting question um and i agree with you and i think part of our responsibility as educators and as academics is to we are no doubt about it creating the next generation of lawyers and we do have a choice. We have a choice as an institution. I have a choice as an academic. We have a choice in whether we enlighten them as to the major issues that exist within the British criminal and civil justice systems, or we don't. And we just say, yeah, go and be a commercial lawyer, go and earn your 100 and 150 grand a year, good for you. Or we say, well, yeah, um, there's a there's a huge body of people out there that will never get access to justice or if they do it will be in a haphazard fragmented way there are a huge amount of your peer group that went before you that are working all the hours for very little pay in for example the criminal justice um, system and I think we we have to think very carefully about that choice we make um, and my opinion is we do enlighten our students as to those issues and we do make them aware that they have a responsibility to the profession, they have a responsibility to uh, the citizens of, of wherever they end up working to give something back. Um, and I'm, I'm very realistic. If you're a commercial lawyer, you know, putting in 60 to 80 hours a week, there is very little time for mm. pro bono work in your early career. There's no doubt about it. Um, you are not going to be getting a day off a week to come and work in a, in a pro bono legal clinic. There's just no way. But do you know what? You might send some of your salary to a, your, your old pro bono legal clinic or another one near your practice. You might encourage your supervisors who are heading into retirement age to say, could you perhaps give up a day a month or something and go and supervise at my old clinic? There's those little tiny kind of feelers that go out. When you introduce a student to this kind of thing and you say, actually, it's not all rosy, it's not all the money, you know, a lot of people are struggling here. I think you, you set something in their mind going, even if they had never considered themselves a social justice lawyer before, you set something going in their mind and, and, and it pops up again and again throughout their lives. And that's all we need. We need our alumni who leave here this coming year to go into practice and to be saying, actually, I do want to give something back, whether that's part of my salary or occasional day here and there, 
an hour here and there um, or I want to encourage other people who've got more time than me to go back that sort of thing so yeah I think it's really important um, not just from a practical wisdom perspective but just for bringing on the next generation of lawyers Mm. to really show them shine a light and show them what is out there and what's going on Um, and through their readings through their client interviews through managing these cases um, concluding these cases and then writing about these kind of cases hopefully they will see they will see some of that. Yeah, it might yeah. be some of the best and most rewarding experiences of hopefully, their career before yeah. they've even qualified. And then, yeah, hopefully they would want to go back to it. The best of luck with it. Thank you. Um, and obviously we'll be uh, letting people know more about it as soon as it launches properly across Thank all you. the usual channels. Um, we end every podcast with some questions outside of work. Uh, they're sort of quick fire questions and talking points, really. So uh, we'll fire away with those. The first one, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, okay. So if it's me personally, I think I'd grab her and just mother her, really. I think she she was a bit motherless and a bit ankerless in her 20s. So, um, And I think the advice I would give her is never be afraid to go back on a commitment, even when you've made a very public commitment to something. Never be afraid to say thanks, but no thanks. Do it quickly and cleanly and as kindly as possible to those around you but do it nonetheless because it's your life it's no one else's life so I think if you're in your late teens early 20s right now and you have made some decisions that you are questioning in your own inner voice I think you you know really really ask those questions in your own private place and then if the answer is actually I do need to go back on this then then do it quick shop good advice um, yeah um can you pick a favorite place in sussex oh my goodness um i'm always torn between the woods and the sea so um i have a paddleboard and i do go paddleboarding quite often and i'm a big swimmer so can i have two or not is it just one <laughs> maybe if, if, if there's one near the sea and one near the woods then go yeah, for it, yeah um probably some of the woods just um just off uh or petworth woods or mm. some of the woods just off Goring seafront so then I get a bit of sea and a bit of woods those okay. are my favorite too nice okay um what are you currently reading watching and or listening to one of the books I've read this year which has really stuck with me is Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez once you've read it I just don't think you can unsee what she's saying it's a very well-researched book she took five years to to write it um there's a huge amount of statistical evidence in there um and it really it deals with the data bias between men and women and i i really encourage everybody to read it i think it should be on university reading lists really good book so that's my non-fiction i'm nearly always reading something by the likes of margaret atwood or ali smith that kind of author i absolutely love naomi alderman so yeah at the moment i've got an old margaret atwood battered text on the go i'm trying to watch stranger things which i love i adore stranger things because it really reminds me of growing up in the 80s but it's so jumpy and i don't cope very well with the the jump so i kind of watching it in bite-sized chunks so i don't get too much adrenaline in my system um so i love that yeah the investment yeah i yeah it's so good isn't it so good yeah (laughs) um can you describe your perfect weekend Probably a few of my good friends, a really nice brunch, um, lots of avocado and very good sourdough bread, and then a hike through some really dense woodland with probably a picnic blanket and some some sort of uh, food to finish off the day and watch the sunset um, on the top of a hill. That would be absolutely amazing for me. Sounds good. Um, And finally, if you can invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be and why? 
Oh, my goodness. Uh, let me think. So um, I would have to say someone alive at the moment would have to be Stephen Fry. I think he's amazing. I listen to everything he does on Audible and uh, I just think he's, his Radio 4 show at the moment is really amazing. So I'd, I would love him. He seems like so patient and um, so interesting. And, yeah, so definitely Stephen Fry. I think Margaret Atwood... I went to see her at the Southbank Centre recently and she is just phenomenal, um, phenomenal woman in her 70s. Um, so dry, so interesting. Um, Humour is just fantastic. And then, I know this sounds weird, um, but I would probably pick one of the Bronte sisters. Not necessarily because <laughs> my name is Bronte, um, although I was named after them, but my parents put an I between the T and the E, but I was named after them and they said, oh, it's a waste as a surname, let's call it call you it as a first name. But I just think they had the most interesting, amazing life and, and it was full of sorrow and heartbreak as well. But I'd really love to know how those women wrote and published in that time, what kind of things they, they, they came up against. So, yeah, one or if I could have all of them just as kind of a generic group, that would be amazing. I know the, the dinner party is expanding rapidly, um, but yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much to Bronte for her time. Keep an eye out on our social media channels for more information about the Pro Bono Clinic and to find out more about our law courses, click or tap the links in the podcast description. That's it for this week, but a friendly reminder, if you're not already, you can like and subscribe to this podcast series. Search University of Brighton in your preferred podcast app like Spotify, Google Podcasts and iTunes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>